We are in the middle of a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. You're welcome to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, though we're, we're just focusing in on one short verse, but an important one. When we pray, forgive us our sins. And what an appropriate time to talk about the forgiveness of sins as we've celebrated all morning the forgiveness of sins through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, it's not the, the water that cleanses the sin, it's the faith. And it's not eating the bread and juice that forgives sins, it's Jesus' sacrifice. Forgiveness, as we heard from David, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity is not held against him. If forgiveness is so wonderful and so sweet, why is it so rare? It's a question we'll explore this morning. It is one of the central themes of the Bible. The central theme being the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, that God is king. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is creator. He owns everything. He's all wise, all knowing, all powerful. He has no beginning and no end. And yet by the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, we see Human beings created in his image, intended for holiness, falling into sin, and God launching a redemption project. And man thinking the redemption project is doing enough good to earn God's favor. But God tells us in Genesis 3:15 and 16. He says that the seed of the woman would come and Satan would bruise his heel, but the seed would crush Satan's head. And that is exactly what happened on the cross. A mortal blow, but not an eternally mortal blow. For Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death. And he will deal with, Satan the conquering blow and crush his head. In fact, in a sense, he already has. My daughters returned from uh, camp this week where they were serving as child care assistants. And we said, well, what did they teach you? And one of the things they heard that they were excited about was, um, and see if I get the line right, we're not battling the flesh and battling Satan for victory, we're battling from victory. See, when we think it's all about someday I'll finally be good enough, then we miss the gospel. The freedom and the power that comes from knowing that victory has already been won changes everything. If I'm trying to be good on my own, then my eyes shift from God to the horizontal and I walk around trying to make myself better than the next guy. 
It's legalism. And it's ugly to God when he's offered us a free gift, a full pardon through faith in Christ to try to buy our way into heaven and bribe the Most High God. It also makes us not quick to forgive when we see life that way. Not quick to forgive nor quick to ask for forgiveness. But if we walk in victory and live out of victory, we can embrace forgiveness and see how important, how special, and the blessing that comes from being forgiven and extending forgiveness. The beginning of the psalm starts with the familiar words, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Right, But the righteous one meditates on the law of God day and night, and he'll be like a tree planted near waters. And you're familiar with the rest of the psalm, and it sets the tone for the other 149 psalms. And we get to Psalm 32, and we, as we read this morning, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And how do we get from Psalm 1 to Psalm 32? Probably the same author. Probably David wrote Psalm 1. Here's a man who probably also wrote Psalm 119, extolling the goodness of the law and the perfection of the law and the blessing that comes from living out the law of God. And indeed, there is great blessing in living out the law of God. And David was a man after God's own heart and the chosen one of Israel to lead God's people and be that example for them. And an example we understand that points us to the true King, Jesus Christ, but how could he fall so greatly? Sinning against Uriah, stealing his wife while he was fighting for his nation and then covering his iniquity by ordering Uriah to be sent to the front line and in the heat of battle the rest of the army retreating and then he would nobly step in and take the poor widow for his wife and that will explain where she became pregnant And so lying really against the entire nation. But David saying in another psalm, Against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. What bridges the gap between Psalm 1 and Psalm 32? And I think we see that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, we affirm and believe and extol Psalm 1. And then we try to live life and we end up at Psalm 32. Blessed is the man who, who doesn't sin. Psalm 1 really is saying, I want to be blessed. I want to be happy. I want to find the peace that passes all understanding that only God 
can give. But what gets me to Psalm 32 is realizing that I don't have this perfect righteousness, that I can't keep the law of God perfectly. And even on my good days, I find myself taking pride in my self-righteousness. So the good I do, I often don't do with the right motive. And as Paul cries out in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity is not counted against him. If forgiveness is this wonderful and it's such a major theme in the Bible, then why is it so rarely practiced even in the church and in Christian homes? You understand, if, if, if there was forgiveness, there would be no broken relationships. Oh, relationships would get broken because of sin, but it's forgiveness that brings the relationships back together, that brings reconciliation. There'd be no church splits. There'd be no divorce. There'd be no broken friendships. There'd be no open hostility amongst fellow countrymen like we see today and have seen throughout the history of the world. No hostility between nations. Sin separates. Forgiveness brings back together. Sin is the problem. Forgiveness is the solution. It's not the solutions we think it is. Well, if he'd only stop doing this, if he'd only da 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 on and on and on. If estranged parties would realize sin is the problem and forgiveness is the solution, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> so it's an integral part of the Lord's model prayer. After we pray that God's name be holy on this earth and that his kingdom would come and his will be done, we find out exactly what his will is and what his kingdom looks like. And that is one where people forgive one another and receive forgiveness from God. That is unleashing God's kingdom here in this world. That is your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven's a place where forgiveness is no longer necessary. No traitors in heaven. But the king is offering a full pardon to us treasonous sinners. And he's offered it to us by paying our sin debt with the life of his own son. So this morning we'll look at three things about sin and three things about forgiveness. So let's start with, with sin. Number one, this petition teaches us at least three things about sin. First and foremost, we are, are still sinners. We are still sinners even after salvation. Remember the Lord's prayer 
begins with Father. It is for believers. Unbelievers don't pray the Lord's Prayer. Oh, they might recite it, but that's different than praying. This is for people adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We can call God Father only when we've been reconciled to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a model prayer for believers. So you might ask, if we're already forgiven in Christ, why does Jesus teach us to ask God to forgive us in his model prayer? Because we need daily cleansing. Not because the sin that we commit each day separates us from God eternally. That's been taken care of on the cross. But we still have residual fallen flesh. And praying daily and specifically, specifically, how you sin against God. Both sins of commission, sins you've committed, things you've done that you know violate his law, and sins of omission, things you should have done but you omitted. And then, as I mentioned earlier, sins of the heart. Things I did that were right, but with the wrong motive to build myself up and to impress other people with what a good, pious person that I am. First and foremost, then, and this is point number two, all of our sin is against God. The word For sin, in the Greek, that is most commonly used is hamartia. And it means missing the mark. It's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Lord, or God, forgive us our sins. And he uses the word hamartia. But in the second half of the petition, he says, For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And he switches to another word used for sin that talks about the indebtedness. It's a financial term. And I think that is for a purpose. That he didn't use the same word for sin on the front half of the prayer and the back half of of the petition. Missing the mark is reserved for how we sin against God because he is the mark. He is the standard. When I sin against you, it's because I've broken a standard that God has set, not because I've broken a standard you have set. And often what people call sin, I have come to find out, isn't sin at all. Well, he didn't love me in just the way I wanted to be loved. She didn't use just the right word or she gave me a look. Somebody ignored me. They they didn't say hello to me or didn't call me on my birthday or there's endless laws that we make in our heart and hold people accountable to that law. A lot of times in counseling, I find out this is the quote-unquote sin that people are unhappy about. 
Now, when you let all that build up and build up and build up, eventually real sin follows. Anger and hurtful words and accusations, murders and adulteries of all kind. But often what's at the root of people's estranged relationships is just unmet expectations. And the expectations were elevated to needs, which were elevated to have-to-haves, which are elevated to law. And you've broken that law, and you must pay. You owe me. And folks, we're all walking around, whether we know it or not, keeping a list of wrongs and feeling as if though people owe us. And you say, well, no, I'm not sure you are. Because eventually the person that owes you this debt, you'll want to cash in. You'll want to cash in because they owe you. And then they don't give you the thing you want, and in your heart you say, how could they? After all, I've forgiven them of. After all the times I catered to their needs and all the times I gave into their preferences, you'd think I could have this one thing. And 1 Corinthians 13 says what? Love keeps no record of wrongs. We're keeping record of things that aren't even wrongs. God sets the mark. We sin against God first and foremost. He is the mark. God doesn't need forgiveness. Let's get that straight right now. When we pray to God, forgive us our sins, and then before we say, as we forgive those who sin against us, it's two kinds of sin. There's the vertical sin and the horizontal. The vertical goes one direction. We sin against God, he forgives us. It's never the other way around. In our horizontal relationships, I sin against you, you sin against me. I ask for forgiveness, you forgive me. You ask for forgiveness, I forgive you. But always remember that in your relationship with God, he grants the forgiveness. We are the debtors. And he grants the pardon. And he's quick to forgive. He loves to forgive. There's a party in heaven, it says, when one sinner repents. Over more so than the 99 righteous who don't need repentance. If God ever missed the mark, we'd be in trouble. A universe where there's no ultimate standard? How could we live like that? But with God, He is the mark. It's not that there is a standard and then there's God and God always meets the standard. He is the standard. There's a difference, a huge difference. 
An infinite difference between there being a standard and God always keeps the standard and God being the standard. If there was a standard that God always meets, then the standard is higher than God. God is the standard. He is goodness. He sets the mark. So when we sin, we miss the mark. We fall short, Paul says, of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have gone their own way. There's this rogue teaching that makes its way through Christianity ever so often that says if you're hurting and you're upset with God, you can forgive him for the wretched life he gave you or the time he didn't intervene. And I understand the sentiment behind this. And they say, well, of course God doesn't need to be forgiven, but he's big enough to handle your bad theology for a time if it gets you over the hump. Folks, believing something untrue about God never gets you over the hump. Never gets you over the hump. If you for a moment allow yourself to think that God needs your forgiveness, you have now placed yourself in the role of God. And that's our problem to begin with. That, that's the whole mess. It's never the solution. Better to say you can cry out to God with humility but honesty and say, God, I know you are good. I know you are always good, but this thing going on in my life or this thing you allowed to happen doesn't feel good. I don't see the good in it. Like Job. And what does the Bible say? As Job cried out, but he did not sin against God when he cried out. You can cry out to God, but he does not need your forgiveness. We need his forgiveness. Oh, we desperately need his forgiveness. And he's so ready to forgive. So ready to forgive. He revealed himself as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yet, by no means will let sin go unpunished. And so how do we reconcile those things. God's justice and God's mercy. The cross reconciles those things. He didn't overlook sin. He died for the sin so that he could be merciful. Third thing this petition then teaches us about sin is that we will be sinned against Because it teaches us that we need to forgive others. In the Sermon on the Mount version of the Lord's Prayer, it's forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then Jesus goes on to teach in both contexts that by the measure that you forgive others is the measure God will forgive you. And if you are unforgiving, don't expect the Father to be forgiving to you. Last week we had our new members class. And welcome new members. We'll announce those names after everything is finalized. But the Lord adding to our church family here. And as part of the presentation, Nathan, 
Pastor Nathan does a part on church unity, and he says, you need to know that you will be sinned against here at Country Oaks. So leave the whole church hurt thing at the door. Church, the build, unless the building falls on you, you haven't been church hurt. <laughs> You've been sinned against, or as I said earlier, maybe you hadn't been sinned against, and you just thought you were sinned against. And the corollary being, if you will be sinned against, you will sin against others at some point. And it is not time to separate, it's time to be reconciled. That's what the gospel is all about. How can we preach the gospel to the world if we can't be reconciled to one each other? Those of us who know Christ. And so we aim and plead and strive for reconciliation in Christ. We will be sinned against and we will sin against others. You can count on it. Not if, but when. Now, notice something strange. The prayer seems to leave out something. And I really struggled with this this week. I would like to hear in the prayer and make sure you are asking other people to forgive you. In fact, I think it's harder to ask forgiveness than to extend forgiveness. Both are difficult, and it's really the short answer to my question, why isn't forgiveness practiced more in the church? Because we're stubborn, prideful sinners, and nobody wants to admit they're wrong. So there ain't a whole lot of people running around asking for forgiveness. And extending forgiveness is difficult because you are absorbing a debt. Sometimes an actual financial debt, but always a spiritual debt. It costs you something to forgive. You have to let go of your rights to be hurt and angry and you owe me well when am I off the hook I'll let you know and so people don't want to forgive because they want to hold on to that leverage it, it, it places you above the other person and when you forgive you're reconciled you're, you're back to equal footing and we say the ground is level at the foot of the cross right so we go to the cross where we all realize this unpayable debt God forgave us. And if he forgave us an unpayable debt, how could we turn around and not forgive something small? And I know those something smalls are sometimes really big. But compared to our sin debt against God, all horizontal sin is small potatoes. Because none of us are holy like God. None of us are perfect No one can say, how dare you sin against me? I can't believe someone would sin against this picture of goodness and virtue and perfection. So I would love to see an emphasis on I need to be asking for forgiveness. And so I thought, you know, what I will do is I will supplement with some verses and some teaching on asking others for forgiveness. And I couldn't find 
a single verse in the Bible that explicitly teaches us to go and ask people to forgive us. And you're intrigued, and you're going to go home, and you're going to get your Bibles out, and you're going to be good Bereans, and you're going to search the Scriptures, and I applaud that. And then you're going to be shocked to find out that the Bible doesn't say as much about asking forgiveness as you would like it to. And I am still perplexed by this. And I asked Pastor Craig to look it up because he's finishing up this biblical counseling degree, which is all about forgiveness and reconciliation. And he's like, oh, well, there's got to be some. And I'm like, name them. I can name a bunch off the top of my head where the Bible says, forgive your brother. If your brother sins against you, go to your brother. Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seventy times seven? The parable of the, un- the unforgivable debt where the servant is pardoned by the king and then he turns around and throws this guy in debtor's prison who owes him a small debt and the king says, how wicked are you and throws him into jail and uses it as a parable of what the kingdom of God will be like where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness for those who won't forgive others. Lots of teaching on being forgiving. So maybe I have it wrong and maybe it's harder to forgive than to ask forgiveness. It's easy to say the words I forgive you. It's hard to actually forgive that debt in your heart. Funny story, Craig pulled Peacemakers by Ken Sandy off the shelf. Oh yeah, that's totally where I should have gone. So he goes to the index and looks up asking others for forgiveness. See page 138 where frantically and expectantly and excitedly waiting to get to page 138 to see which scriptures he lists. And page 138, I am not joking, is blank. (laughs) I'm sure a printer's error, but providentially. We've got passages that say, uh, be forgiving to one another, certainly, but you guys email me some some passages, and uh, there'll be indirect references at at best. Very very strange. So I'll let you in on a little joke because pastors have a sense of humor. I told Nathan Thursday night after Bible study. <laughs> Hey, I'm in a pinch. I'm going out of town this weekend. I don't have time to study. Can you send me your favorite verses in the Bible that say to ask for forgiveness from one another? He's like, sure, I got it. And he sent me four articles on forgiveness, and none of them had anything to do with, yeah, pastor humor. Yes, we're that lame. That's, that's, that's our big practical joke is looking up Bible verses that don't exist. Let me tell you the difference between judicial and relational forgiveness. It's important that that we hear this. This sounds very technical. But I don't want you going home as a believer thinking... Every time I sin against God, I'm no longer in the family of God and I, and I need his forgiveness to get back into the family of God. Because people walk around with this understanding. It's a misunderstanding. I'm on God's team, I'm off the team. I'm in the family, I'm out of the family. 
And one of two things happens when you have this misunderstanding about forgiveness. You either convince yourself that I don't need any more forgiveness. You become a legalist, like a Pharisee. Of course God's happy with me. I do everything right. Or you swing to the other side of the pendulum and you, um, you walk around beating yourself up all the time. Oh, God will never love me and God will never be pleased with me. And God, you know, as if God is miserly and difficult to please. He's difficult to please on our own, but in Christ, Christ has already pleased the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He sees us in our perfected state once we become believers. He, he treats us as if we are already holy because we get the righteousness of Christ and he loves us like he loves his own son. That's judicial forgiveness. He declares us not guilty in Christ even though we're guilty. We call that justification. You don't need to go back and get re-justified, re-justified, re-justified. But relational forgiveness is different. My children will always be my children. I don't care how old they get. And God forbid if any of them are wayward and estranged from me, they'll always be my children. But when they sin against me and I sin against them, there is separation in the relationship and forgiveness reconciles the relationship. Relational forgiveness. The Lord's Prayer is teaching us to go to God after we're believers and that we need relational forgiveness from the Father. We need to hear from Daddy, it's okay, I forgive you, all is right with us. And when we don't get that relational forgiveness, the Bible says that our Father is a good Father and He disciplines the ones that He loves. I'm glad God doesn't let me experience peace when I am in sin. I'm glad, like David, I can say my bones were drying out. Like in the fever heat of summer, and boy, we don't need any more reminder of that, do we? Turn off the AC. No, don't. And so the loved ones in your life, I hope you're not walking around going, well, today you're, you're in the family, but tomorrow you might not be, All right? It's so hard to be around a person like that, so hard. You're walking on eggshells, you know. Don't say the wrong thing. What's the wrong thing? We're not sure. Just don't say it. And so they're here, and we're all here, and they're in the driver's seat. I'll let you know if I'm happy with you today. That's not the way God loves us. John 13 illustrates this when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. They're in the family of God, everyone except Judas, of course. And he goes to wash their feet as an example of humility. And... Peter says, oh, no, you're not washing my feet, Lord. You know, like, you're, you're too holy, and I'm not worthy to have you wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And so Peter says, then wash my head and everything else, right? 
And Jesus says, if you're already clean, you don't need to be washed anymore, just your feet. And the picture is, you're, you're saved, you're washed clean of all your sins, you're in the family of God, but we're still walking around in this filthy world. And we need our feet washed daily, as it were. That's the picture. So three things this teaches us about forgiveness then. Number one, God is ready and willing to forgive his children. Ready and willing to forgive his children. If he tells us to pray this, he must want us to pray this so he can forgive us. You can go to your Father in heaven daily and confess your sins to him and be assured he is ready to grant forgiveness. And not those like, you know, have mercy on me, a sinner, God. Come on, get, get specific. I'm not letting you out that easy. Well, you know, we're all sinners, so. Really, how so? I, I find in counseling that when we get to the really how so, that's when you really find out if somebody thinks they're a sinner. That awkward moment that turns into minutes where they just can't name anything specifically. And I'm thinking, how about right now? (laughs) It's a sin to pretend you don't have any sins to confess. It's a sin to think you don't have any sins to confess. If God says, pray this way, then we must be sinners and he must be ready to forgive. How wonderful to receive God's forgiveness. Like David said, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose iniquity is not counted against him. Secondly, we need to be ready then to grant forgiveness to others. The Bible teaches that God will relationally forgive sin to his children in the same measure his children are willing to forgive others. It's kind of scary, but it teaches it in multiple places. By the measure you forgive others horizontally, God will forgive vertically. Not in the judicial sense. Although I would say this, if you are not saved, if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you're probably not a very forgiving person horizontally. And so the Bible may be saying in the judicial sense that if you're not going to be forgiving of other people, then God's not going to forgive you, but probably because you're not going to go and ask. I mean, if you really knew you were forgiven by God and you really understood your sins against God, you're so overwhelmed with gratitude and humility that, of course, you're ready to forgive others. Forgiving others doesn't earn you brownie points in heaven. Forgiving others is an evidence, it's a fruit of someone who is truly saved. In fact, I would be willing to go out on a ledge and say this. The person who does not ask for forgiveness of others or forgive others and calls himself a Christian is living a different religion altogether. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't forgive. Oh, you may, you may be stuck in a moment, a particularly devastating sin against you. That's different than just someone who's walking around like a Pharisee. I don't need to forgive anyone, nor do I need to ask anyone to forgive me. Christians are people 
who forgive and seek forgiveness. If, if nothing else, that's who we are. What's that Latin phrase you used a couple weeks ago, Andy? The sine qua non. Did I get it right? With, that's Latin for without which nothing. If you're not forgiving people, you're, you're not a Christian. We're all about forgiveness. It's what we're modeling to the world. It's what the cross is all about. So we need to be ready to grant forgiveness to others. Thirdly, we must be ready and willing to ask forgiveness from God and others. If you expect God to forgive you and other people to ask you for forgiveness, then you need to be asking God for forgiveness and asking others for forgiveness. I think the reason that there's no explicit petition that we ask other people to forgive us is because it's implied that if we're all supposed to be forgiving our brothers and sisters, then all the brothers and sisters are sinning against each other, including me. It's not all of you are sinning and not me. So it's not that it's not in the Bible, it's it's implicit. It's implied. If we need to ask God for forgiveness, then certainly we sin. And if we need to be forgiving one another, then that means I must be sinning against you and you must be sinning against me. So, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, it cultivates and readies our heart to be forgiving and to ask for forgiveness from others. Just a word on two types of forgiveness, unconditional and conditional. Unconditional and conditional. This is uh, uh, something theologians argue over, which I hope if they get in a fight that they forgive one another because that would be ironic. I'm not talking to that unconditional forgiveness heretic. Unconditional forgiveness requires no repentance or confession of sin or request for pardon. It's, you know, someone doesn't even know they sinned against you and you just grant the forgiveness. And sometimes that's all you can do. If someone sinned against you and they're, and they're dead now, they can't ask you for forgiveness. Maybe you're still harboring unforgiveness against a parent or someone else who's, who's passed away and they've sinned against you and you're not hurting them by holding it over them. You're hurting yourself. You're pouring a cup of poison for them and then gulping it down yourself. Conditional forgiveness, which is also called transactional forgiveness. It's got that money language in it, transactional. Is when the sinner repents and confesses sin and requests the pardon and then the offended party extends the forgiveness. And there's a transaction that happens. And I just want to say this. Have a heart of unconditional forgiveness. Like, I'm just ready to forgive because I want people to be ready to forgive me. And if it doesn't actually happen face to face, that's okay. But whenever possible, strive for transactional forgiveness. Strive for transactional forgiveness. Have the face to face. There's 
blessings that come from the transactional forgiveness. Some theologians teach that there's no forgiveness outside of transactional forgiveness. I disagree. But I think it should be the norm and it should be the goal. For at least three reasons. Number one, so both parties actually agree on what the sin is. So you're not walking around accusing someone of sin in your heart and then going, but I forgave them. Oh, well, how big of you? Or maybe it was just a misunderstanding. And if you would just ask them, you go, oh, I totally thought you were trying. Okay, never mind. Hey, will you forgive me (laughs) for believing the worst about you instead of the best? I mean, sometimes you go to someone to tell them you sinned against me and you find out, oops, (laughs) Uh, never mind. (laughs) And now you feel horrible that you would have thought such terrible thoughts about another person. And now you need to ask forgiveness. Oh, I am so sorry. Really? You thought I would have done something like that to you? Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's why I was so hurt. See a lot of that. And if you never go to the party and, and tell them, I think you've sinned against me, and give them a chance to say, how so? You know, and, and they may lock up and they may go, I didn't sin against you. And you have to be prepared for that. But it's better to go and talk to your brother because Jesus says if your brother sins against you, go and talk to your brother. And I mentioned this already because it keeps you from labeling other people sinners that haven't that you've forgiven in your heart when they didn't actually sin against you. And thirdly, it's the most complete way to restore fellowship. I've been part of personally some beautiful acts of reconciliation both in my own home or with my wife or my children, with other people in the church. But I've also been the mediator in seeing reconciliation happen. I've seen plenty of no reconciliation happening, and that's sad. But it makes true reconciliation all the more beautiful. And I'll tell you the secret ingredient to reconciliation. If we have two parties coming in and and they're going to hash something out, if each party would first go before the Lord at home and pray and list how they have sinned in the situation and be ready to confess that sin to the other person and receive forgiveness before you move on to your list of grievances, nine times out of ten, when that has happened, the two parties never get to the list of grievances They just go, you know, I was blind. I didn't see where I was sitting in this. Will you forgive me? And when it's two ladies, ladies, they'll just burst into tears and hug each other and go, I don't even know why I'm mad at you. And I'm like, I'm done. I had nothing to do with this. It was all the Holy Spirit and humble hearts. But if they don't, bring that attitude of humility to the table. You could sit at the table for hours and hours and hours and then it becomes some kind of like tit for tat. Well, if you'll give them this, they'll give you this and and you end up with just compromise and nobody's really happy. Okay, fine. He can have this and I'll, I'll do this. That's not reconciliation. If you want, like David, to hear Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose iniquity is not held against him. You have 
to be confessing your sins. Then you receive the forgiveness. So we have three points about sin, three points about forgiveness. I give you three questions to think about as you leave. Number one, have you received judicial forgiveness from God through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Stop thinking about that person that has sinned against you. Have you been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ like the three that were baptized this morning? If you haven't, come talk to me. Or any Christian, they can tell you how you can be reconciled to God. And so you can call him Father. Secondly, do you need relational forgiveness from God? So you're in the family of God, but you know you've actively been holding on to certain sins, and you need that relational forgiveness. Or maybe you need relational forgiveness from another person, but you're too prideful to name your sin and ask to be forgiven. You need to let go of that pride and seek your brother and ask for forgiveness and be specific. Thirdly, are you harboring bitterness, unforgiveness, or false forgiveness toward a brother or sister? You won't forgive someone or you said you have forgiven them but you haven't really forgiven them in your heart. How do you know when you've forgiven somebody truly? We use these these three indicators, number one, you don't talk about it anymore to them. Number two, you don't talk about the sin to anyone else anymore. It's gone, it's done. And number three, you don't keep hold of it for leverage. You know, well, I've forgiven you, but... No, that's not forgiveness. And again, forgiveness doesn't mean you let people walk all over you. If you're in an abusive relationship, you can be forgiving without allowing yourself to be beaten up. And sometimes forgiveness means restitution. Zacchaeus paid back the people he stole from fourfold. And sometimes it takes time for trust to be rebuilt. We, under, we understand that, but the first step is saying... God has forgiven me an unpayable debt. I can forgive you because I want reconciliation. That's what's important to God. And God says that's what's going to bring me blessing and I want the blessing. Whatever feels good to you by holding on to unforgiveness, I guarantee you the real goodness is waiting on the other side of reconciliation. Trust the Lord. He knows He died so you would know. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you. Go forgive someone or be forgiven this week.